Chapter 5 of Life of Dorothea Lynde Dix by Francis Tiffany. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter 5 In Liverpool, England. So complete was the state of prostration in which Miss Dix was left by the collapse of her powers in the spring of 1836 that her physicians insisted on the abandonment of every thought, present or prospective, of further schoolkeeping. It had become a question of life or death. The immediate necessity was entire change of scene and climate. To this end, a sea voyage to England was prescribed, where she should spend the summer, and in the autumn seek the milder climate of the south of France or of Italy. Provided, accordingly, with letters of introduction from Dr. William E. Channing and other influential persons, she set sail from New York for Liverpool, April 22nd, in company with Mr. and Mrs. Frank Schroeder and Mr. and Mrs. Farrar, friends who watched over her on the voyage with all care and tenderness. It was her intention, on landing, to spend several months in England, and later on to rejoin the Farrars somewhere on the continent. Once again was all choice of plans taken out of her hands. After her arrival in Liverpool, it became clear that she was in too suffering a condition for either travel or sightseeing, and forlorn enough would now have been her situation but for the providential kindness of new-made English friends. Fortunately, among the letters of introduction from Dr. Channing was one to the family of Mr. William Rathbone of Liverpool, a merchant of wealth and high standing, a prominent Unitarian, and identified with every good cause of benevolence and reform. Calling upon the stranger invalid at the hotel where she lay ill, Mr. and Mrs. Rathbone at once insisted on her removal to their own residence, Greenbank, some three miles outside the city, and to this charming place, and to the hearts of the family she was now taken. It was, certainly, with no thought of remaining there longer than a few weeks, that Miss Dix became an inmate of the Rathbone household. In reality, with short intervals of change, it was to be for full eighteen months. Frequent hemorrhages set in, and so great was the exhaustion attendant upon them that much of her time had to be spent in bed or on her lounge. And yet, to the end of her days, this period of eighteen months stood out in her memory as the jubilee year of her life, the sunniest, the most restful, and the tenderest to her affections of her whole earthly experience. To the strenuous invalid, nursed in the school of stern self-abnegation, there was nothing in the scripture maxim, it is more blessed to give than to receive, which she did not thoroughly endorse and gladly practice. By nature, however, it came very hard to her, 
as always in the instance of overpoweringly active and self-helpful characters, to reverse this maxim and recognize that the day surely comes to every poor, worn, and weary mortal when it should with equal devoutness be acknowledged how much more blessed it is to receive than to give. But during the whole year of 1836-37, to 37, Miss Dix, as her letters show, evidently lived on the mountaintop of this reversed beatitude. It was the one only long holiday she ever knew in life. She threw off care and ceased to plan. She lovingly resigned herself and her shrouded future into the hands of God while her heart overflowed with gratitude for the love with which she found herself cherished by the whole devoted household. The storm and stress period of her life seemed over, and, spite of illness, perhaps even more on its very account, the ardent and romantic fervor of affection, so deep-seated underneath her self-controlled exterior, together with her native delight in refinement, culture, and social charm, now found free vent. It is, accordingly, in the following happy state of mind that we find her writing, October 1, 1836, to her friend, Mrs. Samuel Torrey of Boston, quote, You know I am ill. You must imagine me surrounded by every comfort, sustained by every tenderness that can cheer, blessed in the continual kindness of the family in which Providence has placed me, I with no claims but those of our common nature. Here I am, contracting continually a debt of gratitude which time will never see cancelled. There is a treasury from which it will be repaid, but I do not dispense its stores. I write from my bed, leaning on pillows in a very oriental luxury of position, one which I think will soon fall into a fixed habit. Not, however, without the persistent application of strong counter-irritants on the part of her Puritan grandmother in Boston, was Miss Stix allowed to surrender herself to this blissful state of nirvana. The bare elements of the situation shocked every sense of propriety in the rigid old lady, who had herself been brought up in the inflexible early New England creed that the one and only befitting posture for a triumphant Christian consumptive to die in was sitting bolt upright in a straight-backed chair, maintaining so long as consciousness survived a clear two inches of space between the person and any terrestrial proffer of support. To her, then, it seemed simply incredible, an outright moral fall, that a granddaughter of her own should actually consent to stay on month after month in a strange household, where she could render no kind of equivalent in service for the trouble and expense to which she must be subjecting everybody. Little could the primitive old lady take it in that the very reason why the grateful invalid at Greenbank was so luxuriating in her life there 
grew out of the fact that now for the first time in her experience her nature was blossoming out in an atmosphere of free, spontaneous love. Only natural, then, is it to find her writing back to her grandmother in Boston in a strain that shows how deeply her feelings had been hurt. Quote, I have felt the obligation to my friends in England so exclusively my own that it was not less surprising than painful to know you indulged so much solicitude on that point. There is a danger, perhaps, of my getting a little spoiled by so much caressing and petting, but I must try to do without it if I get better. So completely am I adopted into this circle of loving spirits that I sometimes forget I really am not to consider the bonds transient in their binding. End quote. Likewise, to her Boston friend, Mrs. Samuel Torrey, she writes in a similar strain, quote, you know all my habits through life have been singularly removed from any condition of reliance on others, and the feeling, right or wrong, that aloneness is my proper position has prevailed since my early childhood, no doubt nourished and strengthened by many and quick-following bereavements." At the time of Miss Dix's first visit to England, Communication between Europe and America was a very different thing from what it is now. The day of steamships lay still in the future, and not yet was the Atlantic turned into a simple ferry across which boats ply daily at stated hours of departure and arrival. Sometimes eighteen days sufficed to bring letters while at others two full months must pass without the relief of any intelligence from home. Miss Dix's experience was destined to be the common one of those abroad. Before very long, news of the inevitable changes wrought by death began to arrive. Thus, September 28, 1836, Mrs. H. S. Hayward of Boston writes to inform the invalid of the sudden death of her mother in Fitzwilliam, New Hampshire. Quote, the remembrance of duties so faithfully performed, and the consciousness that you could have done nothing more had you been at home, will be a comfort to you. Your mother's departure was so unexpected that even those in the room were totally unprepared. No sickness nor suffering, but a sudden summons to go to her rest after a life of suffering from a lingering disease. The intelligence of her mother's death was the opening afresh of an old wound in the heart of Miss Dix, awakening once more the sense of passionate grief she cherished throughout life at never having known in childhood the blessedness of a happy and loving home, a grief rendered all the intenser now through daily communion with scenes of domestic joy. For long years, one additional reason for the excessive overstrain she had subjected herself to had grown out of the necessity of contributing to the maintenance of her mother. 
He would have been a bold prophet who should in those days have bade the suffering invalid look forward to well nigh fifty years of such extraordinary achievement as to amaze all who came in contact with her. As late as January 25, 1837, nearly nine months after her arrival in England, she writes her friend Miss Heath, quote, I have been very ill from the middle of November till the past week, but have just now less pain in the side, diminished cough, and on the whole an accession of strength. This week, for the first time since September, the physician gave me permission to walk about the room several times daily. It is ten days since the last spitting of blood, and altogether I am quite comfortable at least, I may say, happy and grateful for the manifold blessings of my condition. Later on, however, in Miss Dix's stay in England, the improvement of her health grew steadily more marked, and during the last part of her sojourn at Greenbank, as well as on the occasion of visits to other friends, she was able to enjoy a good deal of social intercourse with people of intellectual and moral superiority. On the privilege of this, she writes enthusiastically to Miss Heath, quote, Of my English friends, I should find language too poor to speak the just praise and the excellence which shines in their characters and lives. Your remark that I probably enjoy more now in social intercourse than I have ever before done is quite true. Certainly, if I do not improve, it will be through willful self-neglect." Before closing the narrative of this special episode in the life of mystics, it seems needful to add that an untrue impression would be left on the mind unless emphatic attention were once again called to the sharpness of the pang it had cost her to renounce her chosen career in Boston. The thought that any should suppose she had weakly surrendered when the fiery test came to her was nothing short of torture. Accordingly, when, as months on months of rest went by without recuperation, her dearest home friends wrote to her expressing wonder that she was not already well. Their words seemed to her little short of a moral insult. Quote, I wish, she wrote to Mrs. Samuel Torrey, my home friends expressed and felt less surprise at my not being restored by a mere voyage. I thought they knew me well enough to count more upon the resolution I could exercise in keeping up when very ill than to have been so deceived in supposing I would have laid down all my absorbing and interesting duties so quietly if the conviction had not been too clear to admit a doubt that no effort could longer be sustained. I feel it was right to go on as long as I did, and right to pause only where and when I rested. It is hard, under the actual circumstances of the case, to read this characteristic letter without recalling Browning's poem, 
of the heroic boy who wounded to death still clung to his horse's mane till he had dashed up to napoleon with the news that ratisbon had been stormed Quote, so tight he kept his lips compressed scarce any blood came through you looked twice ere you saw his breast was all but shot in two you're wounded nay his soldier's pride touched to the quick he said i'm killed sire and his chief beside smiling the boy fell dead before the return to america the intelligence of still another death was to reach miss dix it was that of her grandmother at the advanced age of ninety-one this meant of course the breaking up of the only place she could look upon as home. I feel the event, she wrote in reply, as having divided the only link, save the yet closer one of fraternal bonds, which allies me to kindred. Miss Dix returned home sometime in the autumn of 1837, after an absence of over 18 months while her health had greatly improved it still had not sufficiently to admit of her spending the winter in the severe climate of new england happily through the will of her grandmother a bequest had now come to her enough with the earnings of her days of teaching to provide a competency for the moderate wants of a single woman she was thus made mistress of her own time and could for the rest of her days have consulted simply the exigencies of health in the choice of a place of residence, and have felt free to follow the strong bent of her social and intellectual tastes. The first necessity now, however, was to find a milder climate for the coming winter. This she sought partly in Washington, D.C., and partly at oakland near alexandria virginia but the winter proved an unhappy one to her her mind was in a restless state the same ill health that had forced her to give up the school in which the chief interest of her life had centered now forbade her even thinking of resuming it she had parted her moorings and was adrift on the world nor was this all in England, she had tasted the sweets of a new and fascinating experience. She had basked in a sunny atmosphere of sympathy and love, and had shared a life far fuller of charm and intellectual stimulus than any to which she had previously been accustomed. New England, on her return, seemed to her raw, provincial, hard, and ugly, as indeed in those earlier days it was. There seemed no place for anyone who was not fitted into some regular groove of work. Work was the one and only refuge, and what work was there now for her? All this inward sense of restlessness and pain found poignant expression in her letters at this period. Quote, I was not conscious... She writes from Washington, February 24, 1838, to her friend Miss Heath, 
that so great a trial was to meet my return from England, till the whole force of the contrast was laid before me. Then, I confess, it made an impression which will be ineffaceable. Perhaps it is in myself the fault chiefly lies. I may be too sensitive. I may hunger and thirst too eagerly for that cordial, real regard which exists not in mere outward forms or uttered sounds. I may be too craving of that rich gift, the power of sharing other minds. I have drunk deeply, long, and oh, how blissfully, at this fountain in a foreign clime. Hearts met hearts, minds joined with minds. And what were the secondary trials of pain to the enfeebled suffering body when daily was administered the soul's medicine and food? Yes, beloved, ever too dearly beloved ones, we are divided. And what but the deepness of sorrow, what but the weight of grief would rest on my soul if the future the glorious future, the existence that knows no death, no pain, nor separation, were not seen in the long vista through which faith and hope are the angelic conductors. But there are duties to be performed here. Life is not to be expended in vain regrets. No day, no hour comes, but brings in its train work to be performed for some useful end, the suffering to be comforted, the wandering led home, the sinner reclaimed. Oh, how can any fold the hands to rest and say to the spirit, take thine ease for all is well. End, quote. End of chapter 5